welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, we're focused on the important question of vaccine safety, and I'm joined by Dr. Tara Moriarty, an infectious disease research scientist, director of a related research lab, and professor at the University of Toronto. In the course of our conversation, I do my best to pose common questions we've received in our office, but if you have an additional question that wasn't answered on this podcast, I really encourage you to connect with Dr. Moriarty via one of her Zoom Q&As, because when she's not in the lab, she has dedicated her free time to host live Q&As that anyone can join to answer any questions related to vaccines and vaccine safety. Dr. Moriarty opens the floor to questions in order to combat misinformation and any fears over the COVID-19 vaccines. A link to those Q&As can now be found on our Uncommons podcast site, uncommons.ca. And a real credit to Dr. Moriarty, who is taking the time to engage those with questions in conversation, a conversation that is key to getting more people to take the vaccine once it's available to them. Tara, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Are COVID-19 vaccines safe? Yes, COVID-19 vaccines, the mRNA vaccines that are available in Canada were initially tested in about 60,000 people. And since that date, there have been more than 75 million people around the world who have received these vaccines. They have a really excellent safety profile, um, including compared to a lot of previous vaccines. And we have seen uh, very, very few serious adverse events. The frequency of having a a severe um, adverse event, which might be something like anaphylaxis, is about the, the same as the chance of getting hit by lightning. But these uh, adverse events are always planned for. So vaccination teams always have all the kit in case someone was to have a shock like that, and they can fully treat these events. And there have been no serious long-lasting outcome of these vaccines to date. And there have been many, many people who have received them at this point. We've received some questions from constituents as it relates to vaccine safety and typically those with more hesitancy, which I hope we all are able to overcome, but those with hesitancy note that vaccines typically have been developed over many years. And here we see COVID-19 vaccines from start to finish in under a year, not only the development, but also the approval from health regulators. So were any corners cut? And if not, how have health regulators and the vaccine manufacturers been able to manage the speed? It's a really excellent question. It's probably the most common question that we get, and it's very understandable. I also wanted to say that for a lot of people who, you know, they might be referred to as being vaccine hesitant, but a lot of people have very reasonable questions. They want to make good decisions uh, about their own health and the health of, of those they, they love that they might need to make a choice about vaccination. So it's pretty normal, very normal for people to have questions and be able to need to be able to ask team safety. So the question about the vaccines um, and how they were made and how they were developed so quickly. So first of all, there's a misconception that these are very new um, and that they were uh, developed very quickly. But in fact, the technology that underlies mRNA vaccines has been around for a really long time. And there have been mRNA vaccines in clinical trials um, for quite a while. Um, They've been used primarily to treat cancer, for example, not in this type of a setting. But this technology is not new, and we have a fair bit of information about the safety of this type of vaccine um, uh, dating back to long before COVID. In terms of the speed of how they were done, one of the advantages of the mRNA vaccines is that they basically are, they're kind of like a, a photocopy of the code that's used to make 
part of the virus, only a small part of it, not the virus itself. It's kind of like a photocopy of it. And this particular photocopy uh, is actually very easy to make. So we can synthesize it fairly quickly and we can make it in large quantities fairly quickly. So as soon as the sequence of, of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19, was when it was first sequenced out of China, it was released almost immediately to the world. And since then, there's there have been extraordinary sequencing efforts around the world all open data, all shared so that we know exactly uh, what the virus is, how it changes in different places. So we had access to this information in a way that's never been accessible before for an infectious disease. We knew about the genome much faster. We had this very fast technology that allowed us to come up with candidates that could be used to figure out if they'd be good vaccines or not. And then what a lot of people don't realize is that these vaccines, the ones that are approved in Canada now, are actually just a couple of many, many that were tried and that did not go through the, the various steps. They didn't work well enough. They didn't, for a lot of reasons, they were abandoned. So we're seeing the first two of a big uh, group of vaccines that may be coming. Um, we don't know, but these are the successful ones. And there are many that fell sort of by the wayside. Uh, it's just that we've seen the ones that worked um, that worked out. The other reason that this happened exceptionally fast is that everywhere around the world, every country started pouring money into this. Every pharmaceutical company, scientists around the world, including in Canada, completely pivoted and started working on COVID-19, on vaccination, and all these topics. We've never seen this much uh, money and concerted effort put into a human problem, probably in history in such a short period of time. And we also had a lot of technology to be able to do this very quickly. Is there any reason to think that things went very quickly on the regulatory approval side? So normally what happens when a drug is uh, looked at by Health Canada or the FDA or whatever the independent regulatory agency is in whatever country in the world, that process is quite slow normally. That process takes a couple of years, but that's because typically no agency, regulatory agency, for example, has the personnel to uh, do it extraordinarily quickly because this is these are data for, you know, 60,000 people and more. There's an, a, a huge amount of data associated with these trials, and they need to look at it independently. So what happened, there were two things that were done. One, instead of waiting until the very end of the trial and giving all the data at once and plunking it on the desks of the regulatory agencies, it was submitted in a rolling fashion. So some people enrolled earlier in the trials, the results were out, their data were submitted. So this was passed on in a rolling fashion. And then the other thing is that these independent uh, national regulatory agencies, including in Canada, redirected massive amounts of their workforce to be able to uh, vet the data that were coming out from these vaccines. So for example, in Health Canada, an enormous amount of the workforce was redeployed from other areas to be able to do this vetting as quickly, pretty much as humanly possible. You mentioned the likelihood of a severe adverse reaction being very rare, but for those who wonder what any kind of side effect might look like, what can one expect when one gets vaccinated in terms of side effects? 
So normal side effects, the most common side effects for the the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines um, include local soreness at the site of injection, soreness in your arm in general, uh, which, you know, sometimes you'll experience in some vaccines because the immune system is reacting and it's causing a little bit of swelling in the area and that's what makes it sore. Some people will experience feeling kind of under the weather for a day, maybe two, feeling like they're coming down with something, which is actually how we feel when our immune system is kicking into gear when we're catching something. And so that means it's responding to the vaccine. Some people have a little bit of dizziness. Some people have headaches. Some people have a little bit of mild diarrhea. These effects are not as common as soreness and feeling tired and a little bit feverish. And these effects usually last a day, maybe two days, not much longer. Some people can have a more uh, sustained effects. So they may have soreness or discomfort that lasts for longer. Um, this is very unusual for it to happen. It does happen in some people. Some people, if they've had uh, a history of kind of sustained inflammatory responses to infections or other vaccines um, might want to let the vaccination team know about it um, and they can advise if the person should check back in. But there have been no serious sustained adverse events in response to these vaccines among the many uh, people who are being tracked around the world by these independent regulatory agencies who are responsible for monitoring any kind of uh, outcomes that are reported by vaccine teams, physicians, and others. So I also want to make sure that people know that these independent agencies in countries all over the world are all monitoring their own populations. It's independent of the companies and the manufacturers that made the vaccines. So you have Health Canada, you've got the regulatory agency in France, in the UK, all of these, and they're also all sharing data with each other. Um, So we have huge amounts of data that are coming in all the time and that are being shared to make sure that there's no uh, red flag or uh, source of potential concern. Um, So this is being monitored really closely in all the countries in the world where these vaccines have been approved. And what about for individuals who are not as healthy to begin with. And maybe not even just as a matter of a pre-existing condition, but also a matter of age, where are the vaccines going to be safe for my 90-year-old grandmother? So when we do our nightly Zoom calls, one of the, the regular attendees is a geriatrician, um, and her expertise is vaccine safety in older people. And as she always says, and as any geriatrician would tell you, it's not a person's age, it's their frailty. So essentially, if someone is healthy enough to be getting out of bed, to be going about their day as usual, whatever that may be, including for the majority of people who would be in long-term care and others, they might have a lot of underlying health issues. But if they can go about their day and they can eat and drink normally, then the, the vaccine is perfectly safe. In a very small minority of people living in long-term care who are very close to the end of their lives, um, or who might be in hospice, for example, and who are really unstable, um, they're often dehydrated, uh, typically bedridden, they can't swallow anymore, especially if there's underlying dehydration or frailty like that, then if the vaccine, for example, in that person gave them mild diarrhea and someone who is that frail, very close to the end of their life, mild diarrhea can can be life-threatening. And so in those situations, decision makers, if it's not the person themselves, want to talk to the person's doctor, make a decision about it, but also knowing that the opposite of that, of that which is the 
if that person contracts COVID-19 and they're that frail, it's a hundred percent, they're, they're going to die. It, it's not, um, if they're not vaccinated, they're going to die of COVID-19. But again, that that's a very, very, very small proportion of the population, even in long-term care. And it's absolutely not anyone who would be living at home in community or in a setting where they don't need uh, really quite intense personal support and care. And what about those who have autoimmune conditions? I, I have Crohn's, for example. Is there any reason for caution for, for people who may have pre-existing conditions along those lines or, or otherwise? No. In fact, actually, these vaccines have been really, really great for that. Um, so there's no concern for people who have autoimmune conditions. If someone is on extremely high doses of an immune-suppressing drug that to, to treat the, the autoimmune conditions, then it's possible that they might not mount as a, as effective a vaccine response because their immune response is suppressed. So in those settings, again, in consultation with their specialist, they might consider, you know, skipping a dose of the immune suppressing drugs to ensure that the vaccine works better. But that's the decision that people would definitely need to make with their, their specialist or their family physician. And again, this is people who are on very high doses of immune suppressing drugs, but for most so-called run-of-the-mill doses, that would be an issue. And for women who are either pregnant or who are thinking about or wanting to have kids at some point in the future, are there concerns as it relates to fertility on the one hand? And are there any concerns for those who are pregnant right now? So first of all, misinformation or it's false information that's found in a lot of places that the uh, the mRNA vaccines cause infertility. There have been multiple associations and colleges of obstetricians and gynecologists in Canada and elsewhere that have had to come out and make statements um, about this, saying that there is no evidence to support this claim and that it is not a true claim. For pregnant and breastfeeding women, like any other medication, when the trials uh, were first done for the, the mRNA vaccines, they didn't include women of childbearing age unless those women were on two forms of birth control they had to be on to be part of the trials. And the reason for this is that pregnant women are never included in trials unless they're, it's for a medication that's specifically to treat them. They're not included initially, but then evidence accumulates over time. So we don't have evidence that the vaccines are safe in pregnant women, but at the same time, there's no reason to think that they're not because of the mechanism of the way the vaccine works, because pregnant women generally tolerate uh, vaccinations well. And the other thing is that pregnancy is actually associated with a 10% increase in hospitalization. So pregnancy puts women at greater risk of more severe COVID-19, both hospitalization and uh, needing to be in the ICU. And also uh, an increased risk of adverse outcomes for like preterm birth, for example. So for this reason, a lot of healthcare providers all over the world, a lot of women who are exposed to COVID, who are working um, in settings where they're exposed to COVID, very much wanted to have access to the vaccines because there is a known risk of being pregnant and having COVID-19. 
And so uh, what happened was that associations of obstetricians and gynecologists in many countries, including Canada, said that women should have the right to choose whether to be vaccinated or not, that there was no reason historically or based on any kind of mechanisms to suspect that these vaccines would not be safe in pregnant women. And so they, um, they said that women should have the choice in consultation with their doctor. So since then, there are many, 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 many uh, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding who have chosen to be vaccinated. And as we know more about them, so far there have been no signs um, that, that there have been any safety issues associated with the vaccines and all the women uh, who have been vaccinated. And uh, the, the longer we go, the more we'll know about this and the more we'll have information about whether it's safe or not. But certainly there are a lot of women who have been vaccinated, including most of my colleagues who are pregnant or breastfeeding and are healthcare providers or sci infectious disease scientists and others who most have chosen to be uh, vaccinated because of their risk of exposure if they have been offered the vaccine. So this is something to talk to your doctor about. We're going to have more information every day. There's more information about it. And if you're not in a position to be offered the vaccine yet at this point anyway, it doesn't matter. You can wait longer and, um, and you can check in again about where we are on that once you come closer to when you might be expecting to be vaccinated. The vaccine also doesn't cross uh, breast milk. And in fact, there is some evidence that the antibodies that are generated in response to the vaccine do cross breast milk and uh, may be uh, beneficial for um, the babies of, um, of breastfeeding mothers. But yes, there's no concern for breastfeeding. Interesting. I've certainly seen photos of frontline healthcare workers who are pregnant, who are taking pictures and posting pictures of themselves getting vaccinated. Uh, nice to see frontline healthcare workers who are getting vaccinated, certainly. And when we look at the uncertainty in relation to the trials and so far as pregnant women weren't including, but kids also weren't included. But there's actually a lot of anxiety among parents to say, I can't wait for my kids to be vaccinated so that we're all safe. Do you have a sense of when we might have that information and, and how other trials are planned to build that information? Well, it's going to depend on a lot of factors. It's going to depend on how quickly your vaccines are being produced, how quickly they're being approved, how quickly, you know, we vaccinate the higher priority populations before kids, because kids will be the lowest priority population, unless there are other underlying reasons why they'd be higher risk. What typically happens with any kind of clinical trials that start in adults, but are for the whole population. They're always done in adults first, and then they sort of step down. So the next population that the trials are expanded to include are adolescents. And, um, and then after that, you go down to uh, children under 12, usually. So we're at the stage right now that, that for Pfizer, that they completed the enrollment of all of the people, all of the adolescents or teenagers that they needed for that phase of their trials. That's already completed. Moderna, I believe, is near completion of enrollment of people now. So then we'll wait and see what happens with those trials. And they, they have started already for Pfizer. So we'll start seeing early data coming out it's hard to know exactly when all of this will happen because it, it is there's a lot going on. There are a lot of moving parts. But I think we should probably get be getting some good idea about this in about three to four months for adolescents. And then 
probably-ish about three to four months after that for kids. So we might be looking at for kids that we may not know whether these vaccines will be approved for them or not until closer to the end of the summer. But in reality, I don't think it's looking like there are going to be too many kids who are going to be vaccinated before the end-ish of the summer. I mean, we'll see what happens, but unless we start speeding up uh, quite a bit more with vaccination and, you know, there's supply, there are a lot of right. issues associated right. with it. I think that around the time we'll have the data will be around the time that the vaccines would actually even be available for kids. Many people want to be vaccinated as fast as possible, but we also really, really need to protect the most vulnerable and those who are most likely to die um, and experience long-term disability. And we have to we have to wait our turn if we can, right? If we're healthy enough, we ha- we have to do it. We have to protect others. And what do you say to people who I've had a, some constituents say this to me as well when I respond to say vaccines are overwhelmingly safe? I point to the work of the regulators and point to the number of people involved in clinical trials. And they say, you can't possibly know the long-term effects. Vaccines have been around and have been studied for decades and decades and decades. And we know after all those years of studying them that a long-term effect of a vaccine would be something like maybe three months. That might be an effect that uh, that was clearly related to vaccines that you could directly link to them. And, and it's not really seen beyond three months. So there is a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of urban legends or folklore or whatever you call it around vaccines. And people will say so-and-so's brother experienced this or, you know, but the problem is that that's all anecdotal. And when it's being examined, when you look at really big groups of people, those events, which were probably random or related to something other than the vaccine, turn out not to be linked to it. There are lots of things that happen in the population, always going to be people who are experiencing different health issues at a certain percentage in the population at any given time. And if it comes shortly after a vaccination, then sometimes people might think it's because of it. But there are many, many studies that have been done over the years of vaccines. They are one of the, you know, they're one of the medications that almost all of us have, have ever had. Like they're, they're one of the most universal forms of medication in uh, our society and we have massive amounts of data about their safety in general and they're also one of the most important things for protecting um, against truly terrible diseases and i want to remind people i track and report on deaths due to covid 19 in canada in long-term care retirement homes in the general population and what a lot of people don't realize is that one out of every 39 people who's contracted COVID-19 in Canada has died. That's a lot of people. That's a really, really high percentage. So people don't relate to that, but one out of 39 is very high. That's like if every person's extended family got sick with COVID-19, most people have, you know, probably 30 or 40 in their extended family, cousins and everything else. That would mean that at least one of those people would die. It's important for people to remember that, that the the threat or the risk from COVID, not only of death, but of long-term disability and really serious effects on your health, on your kidneys, on your lungs and everything else are extremely severe compared to what we know about the, the, the vaccine and the safety of these vaccines. 
So it's it's a decision people have to make, but but the risk on the side of COVID is huge. And the risk on the side of COVID being huge, I, I follow you and your posts on Twitter where you, yeah. you indicate the even graver risks and the higher percentage as it relates to those who live in long-term care and, and congregate settings and yeah. seniors congregate settings. I had one constituent though, put to me recently that the government has granted the vaccine manufacturers legal indemnity and that it is contradictory to say that vaccine injury is rare, but then to remove liability from the manufacturer. And how would you respond to a concern like that? It's really common. So indemnity is something that that is required. The amount of money that had to be put into developing these was absolutely massive. So not only did they have to invest in the research part of it, but when they got the first signs that it look, looked like they might, might have, have good candidates, they also had to scale up manufacturing. They had to start building these ma- the, this massive scale of manufacturing before they actually had all the results. So the risk and everything else was enormous. So for the indemnification, um, that is something that, that governments would take on um, in this circumstance. And usually uh, manufacturers would take it on. But in this case, part of encouraging them to sort of take uh, the financial risk because insurers would not cover that risk over such a very short period of time, considering the massive amount of money that they invested. That's something that governments will take gone. So to look to that, what people really need to look to are the statements made by the regulatory agencies. Don't worry about the manufacturers. Look at what the regulatory agencies say. They're the ones who make these decisions. They make decisions about the safety and they uh, they make the rulings about the safety as well. And they they are the ones that determine whether things are vaccine linked or not, it's not the companies. The job of those regulatory agencies to investigate that very carefully. And it's their responsibility to uh, report on that and rule on that. So for information, whenever you hear about these these cases, what you really want to listen for and wait for is to hear about it from the regulatory agency and listen for their statements because they're the ones who actually investigate it thoroughly and they look at all the evidence. And, you know, most of us based on a social media post that, you know, like that's, it's not complete information. So you need to wait for the regulatory agencies to issue information about it because they're the only ones who have access to the evidence, right? We don't. My takeaway, I mean, vaccines historically are overwhelmingly safe and you rightly point to the risks of not vaccinating and, and the incredible costs of not doing so versus the the very rare instances of, of more serious adverse effects with vaccines historically, but also in particular with these vaccines and that we rely upon the regulators. I was also comforted, though, where lightning does strike, as rare as it is, we have also put into place a no-fault injury scheme to make sure that everyone is looked after and everyone should have comfort. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know what? That's a really great explanation of how that's set up. So my last question is more for me. It's less about the safety of the vaccine process and and the confidence we should have in the vaccines that have been developed to date as far as safety is concerned. But we see variants from the UK, from South Africa. And do you worry about those variants and vaccine effectiveness? I don't think there's a scientist or anyone with expertise in this area that isn't worrying a lot right now. 
The evidence we have so far for the UK variant is that there is a small reduction in the efficacy of these uh, mRNA vaccines, but it's small. These vaccines to begin with, with you know, 100% protection against death and 95% protection against serious symptoms. They're already so effective that they, they've outstripped almost all first-generation vaccines that we've ever had. So they were really excellent to begin with. So a small loss in effectiveness versus the UK variant still means that they are really bloody effective. The South African variant, it looks like there's more of a reduction in effectiveness, but still probably higher than what we, I think, you know, hoped for in our wildest dreams before we knew that these vaccines had come out. We were, you know, we were hoping for vaccines that were 60% effective um, in the beginning. What people are really, really worried about is that if we don't control infections, you know, they're copying themselves all the time. And a mutation is just when you make a copying error. And if there are millions and millions of cases around the world, there is so much virus out there that's copying and copying and copying, you're going to have more copying errors happen because you just have so much virus around the world. And over time, what will happen and what we've seen with the UK and the South African variants is that you start selecting population for the variants that are easier to spread, for example. So the virus propagates more quickly and then those ones outcompete the, you know, the older, slower ones. So the big fear is that A, if we don't get people vaccinated quickly, B, if we don't control case numbers around the world, it's not just enough in Canada, you're going to have selection pressure because of vaccination. The great fear is that we're going to have variants that emerge that are not going to be uh, recognized by these vaccines. That being said, um, the mRNA technology is very, very fast. So Moderna, for example, has already started making vaccines that recognize the UK and South African variants. So we can predict that. We know what they're likely to recognize. We know what the sequence differences are because we've sequenced them. So they've already started that. And it's likely that because the mRNA vaccines are so fast that we're going to keep doing that. The problem is you have to put them through trials, at least some form of trial, every time you do them, right? And it's the trial, not the actual invention. That's the, the long part for these. So we're always going to be playing catch up, but it's a really good argument for why we really need to keep case numbers under control. All the more reason to get everyone vaccinated as quickly as we can. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And get cases down as fast as we can. Dr. Moriarty, Tara, I really appreciate you spending the time with me, but I also know how much time you and your colleagues are spending on a nightly basis, really. So I really appreciate all of the time you've put into this and I will keep following your updates on Twitter. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Uncommons. We'll be sharing this with constituents and others who reach out with questions and concerns about vaccines. I hope you will too. I also encourage you to share the information about Dr. Moriarty's Q&A sessions via Zoom. Again, the link is up at uncommons.ca. I also want to mention that this conversation was prompted by a friend from law school who reached out asking if we had a resource like this. So another example of how our focus here on the Uncommons podcast can be determined by those who write in. So if there's a topic or guest you have in mind, do let me know. Otherwise, until next time.